Well, good morning again. We now turn to the living and abiding Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 10? We'll begin in verse 16 this morning. Last week, we came back to the Gospel of Matthew by looking at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. And what we saw was Jesus looking at the crowds and having compassion upon them. Because, he said, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the somewhat surprising action Jesus took in response to that was to send the 12 apostles on a mission throughout Galilee to proclaim the message of Jesus and to do the works of Jesus. And in that sending, he began this large block of teaching about mission that goes all the way through the end of chapter 10. And I mentioned to you all last week that we have to pay attention to the two levels of that teaching that are going on. On one level, he is addressing the immediate circumstances. The 12 apostles on a short-term mission in Galilee to only the Israelites, not Gentiles or Samaritans. But on another level, he's addressing the long-term mission that will take place after his resurrection. The mission that is only fully spelled out in Matthew 28, to proclaim his kingdom to all nations until the end of the age. We have to pay attention to those two different levels to understand how what Jesus says applies to us. And at the end of our passage last week, Jesus hinted at the fact that the apostles were going to face opposition. This week, Jesus is going to focus on that almost exclusively. And so this is a reality check for us. We love to talk about the blessings of Christianity that we experience, and we should. But those were always meant to be taught alongside the suffering and persecution that Jesus told us would come. So today, we're going to get a chance to hear both from the mouth of of Jesus, the sobering teaching of Jesus about the persecution and suffering we will face as Christians, but also the stunning teaching of Jesus about the blessings and promises of God in the midst of that suffering. But before we hear from God's word, let's ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit, your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, and we'll go through verse 33. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, 
and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage today, we're not going to go straight through, but we're going to pull out different parts of what we are seeing Jesus teach. And we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see this expectation of opposition or persecution. And then we're going to see what God's commands to us are in the midst of that opposition. And then finally, we're going to look at the promises of God in the midst of that opposition. Jesus starts with a statement that continues the animal imagery from last week. But in some ways, he flips it on its head. Last week, he said that the crowds were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. His answer was to send his apostles as his under-shepherds, as laborers in the harvest, to help his sheep. But Jesus' first line this week is a commentary on the opposition they will face on their mission. Now the apostles are the sheep, and their mission will put them amongst wolves who are trying to harm them. Jesus is telling the disciples that they should expect opposition and even persecution on their mission. Jesus says a few things about that persecution in this passage that I want us to see. First, we notice the intensity of this persecution. He begins verse 17 with the warning, beware, and then goes on to say all that will happen to them. In verse 17, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings. Verse 21 shows that it gets even more intense. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all. Jesus says in verse 25 that they will malign them. And then in verse 28, he repeats the fact that dying is included in this persecution. Notice all the different levels of persecution that he's talking about. 
Everything from maligning or talking bad about someone to the official punishment of flogging and being delivered over to death. And this is a point where we need to ask who it is that Jesus is talking about here. Is he just talking about the immediate circumstances of the 12 apostles on this mission, or is he speaking more broadly? The intensity of the persecution points to the fact that he is almost certainly talking beyond this exact situation. The apostles on this mission met opposition and rejection, as we saw last week, but nothing like the official punishments of courts and synagogues. And we know for a fact, because these 12 names keep appearing in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that none of them were put to death on this short mission. Both the intensity of the suffering and the official nature of it point to a later time. So Jesus is broadening his application to the future mission of the church. But we must also realize that he isn't just talking about the apostles or even about pastors and elders. It's true that the leaders of the church will often be targets for persecution. But the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that all Christians will face the kind of persecution Jesus is talking about here. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the warnings of Jesus here, the beware, and also the promises that he gives them, are not restricted to these 12 apostles. They are for all of us. That's true when Jesus talks about the intensity of the opposition we will face, but it's also true when Jesus points out the basis for that opposition. Notice, he's not just talking about generic suffering or even persecution for living a certain way of life. This persecution comes because of the name of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 18, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Verse 22 says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And see how much our speech is in focus in this section. Verse 18 says that you will go before those governors and kings to bear witness before them. Verse 19 talks about the anxiety over what we will say in that situation. And then verses 32 and 33 end with the central importance of whether we acknowledge Jesus or confess him before men. There's an importance in the general suffering of Christians in this world. We've talked about that frequently. The suffering of sickness and hardship and broken relationships and our own sin. But the suffering Jesus is warning about here is the persecution that comes when people hear you say, Jesus is king. We see this starkly in verses 24 and 25. Our suffering and the hatred we face is directly related to the suffering and hatred that the world has for Jesus. He is our teacher and master, and so we should expect nothing different than what he got. This is one of those teachings of Christianity that we would all like to ignore. We would all like to push it to the side and not think about it. Christians will suffer for being Christians. I'm not saying every one of us will die a martyr's death. For the whole history of the church, persecution has fluctuated 
and happened in different degrees in different times and places. But this is a promise of Jesus. Whether it looks like maligning and mocking, or systematic blackballing in your profession, or even physical punishment and death, if you are a Christian, you will suffer for the name of Jesus. I also want you to see the source of this persecution that Jesus points out. Where does it come from? Jesus starts out extremely generic. Verse 17 begins, Beware of men. And that's not men as in males, but men as in humans. Beware of people. And you might be thinking, what? That's so general. How can I possibly know who to watch out for? And that's exactly the point. This isn't meant to make you suspicious of everyone as a potential persecutor, but it is meant to show you that your wariness shouldn't rest only on certain groups of people. Jesus doesn't say, beware of the Romans, or of the Jews, or beware of the liberals, or of the fundamentalists, or those weird people over there, or those familiar people right here. In this short section, he tells them that their opposition will come from fellow Jews, he mentions synagogues, from high-ranking Gentile officials, and even from family, brothers and fathers and children in verse 21. The point of showing how general the sources of persecution are isn't to make you distrust everyone. The point is to show that Jesus' kingdom is going to redraw the lines of loyalty. This is a binding together of the church. The church is the community that bears Jesus' name. And that means that the church is your community of co-sufferers. Not primarily your ethnic group or your social class, not your country of origin, and in some cases, not even your immediate family. Jesus is marking out the new family that bears his name. And so we've seen the intensity of the opposition, even to the point of death, the basis of it, that we suffer for the name of Jesus and the source of the opposition, that we can't locate it in one group or class, but that Jesus has given us the church as our co-suffering community. But Jesus doesn't just teach us here about the expectation of opposition. He also gives us commands for what to do in the midst of that opposition. We aren't just supposed to close our eyes and wait until the persecution is over. No, he gives us commands to follow. And we see three of those commands in focus here. The first kind of command he gives us is a command concerning our speech. We see this explicitly in verse 27 when Jesus commands them to say in the light what he has told them in the dark and to proclaim on the housetops what they have heard whispered. This is a command to speak. We talked about this last week that they aren't simply being sent out to perform miracles. They are being sent out to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verses 32 and 33 show how important this is to Jesus. He says that his witness before God will mirror our witness before men. If we acknowledge him, he will acknowledge us. If we deny him, he will 
deny us. We'll see more on that in a minute, but notice that the acknowledgement is verbal. Jesus is expecting us to speak in the presence of persecution. He's expecting us to acknowledge the name that is the cause of the opposition. He mentions in verse 18 the result of being dragged before governors and kings. And it's that we will bear witness. Jesus shows that what was meant to be a punishment becomes an opportunity to tell the good news of the gospel to people in positions of power and authority. And just in case you were hoping that this was one of those things that is particular to the apostles and doesn't really apply to us, the apostle Peter actually answers that question for us. In 1 Peter 3, he's speaking to all Christians about suffering for righteousness' sake, and he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the command of Jesus to speak. When your boss brings you in and asks why you won't abide by a new office policy, when your friends ask you why you are always so uptight about your religion, when your family asks you why you have changed so much in the past couple of years, you are being given an opportunity to tell them about Jesus and the hope that is found in him. The next kind of command that Jesus gives us in the midst of this opposition can seem a little bit confusing at first. In the second half of verse 22, he commands us to endure persecution. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But immediately after, in verse 23, he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So which is it? Should I endure persecution or flee from it? Should I stick it out in a hostile job or should I go find another job? Should I keep hanging out with my friends even though they mock me? Or should I find a new group of friends? I believe the answer is found at the beginning of this section in verse 16. Remember, Jesus starts with one animal metaphor and then he turns to another one. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Ever since the Garden of Eden, snakes or serpents have been known to be cunning or crafty. They aren't ignorant or gullible, but are able to preserve themselves. Jesus commends this to us. The only problem with that is that snakes are also feared because they are dangerous. So Jesus offsets that dangerous nature of the serpent with another metaphor, the innocence and harmlessness of doves. The pairing of the two tells us that a disciple's craftiness and wisdom isn't to be directed at harming opponents. But instead, we are to use wisdom for the sake of the gospel. Wisdom knows when to employ different tactics but it always does them for the good of the mission, not just to avoid pain or discomfort, or not just so that you feel better about suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's always for the the sake of the gospel mission. 
So the answer to the either-or questions a moment ago is what is most important for the sake of the gospel? Do I stay in my job? Do I leave this group of friends? Jesus often calls us to persevere in gospel witness, even when it is hard. But there is a time when you realize your witness isn't being listened to. Jesus mentioned that in last week's text and told them to move on to the next town when that is evident. You need to be able to discern when to endure and when to flee to the next mission field. Those decisions take wisdom. The third kind of command Jesus gives us in this text is actually littered throughout. The command is do not be afraid. It begins in verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Then verse 26, so have no fear of them. 28, and do not fear those who kill the body. And finally, verse 31 puts it plainly, fear not. And you might be thinking, is Jesus kidding? Did he forget all the intensity of persecution he just told us about? Maligning, flogging, being delivered over to be killed? How can he say, do not fear? I know I've made reference to this before, but some of you have seen the old Bob Newhart Mad TV clip where he's a counselor and people come into his office and tell him that they have this problem. They can't stop doing something or they can't stop thinking about something. And he always says, I have two words to fix your problem. Stop it. Stop it. Brothers and sisters, that is not what Jesus is saying to you. Jesus is not looking at you trembling at the thought of suffering for your faith and yelling, stop being afraid. Jesus always gives reasons and particularly promises to outweigh your fear. It's never simply don't be afraid. It's always don't be afraid because. And here in this text, Jesus gives us three massive promises to buoy our confidence and comfort in the midst of persecution. The first promise is directly connected to that command to bear witness in the midst of persecution. You heard me say it when I read the beginning of verse 19. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For, here comes the reason, the promise that is meant to outweigh that anxiety. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus identifies a fear, an anxiety, and it's that we will freeze up or won't know what to say in that moment of opportunity. Think about how much being alone plays into this fear. It's that feeling that you are by yourself singled out that the spotlight is on you in that moment and you better not mess up. That's the feeling that terrifies people. But Jesus promises us, you won't be alone. God himself will be with you. The Holy Spirit will guide and direct you what to say. Don't 
picture here a comatose state where the person has no idea what it is that they said or where it came from. Jesus never suggests that. Peter's command in 1 Peter 3 that we just read is a parallel to this. And he says, always be prepared. But the promise is that you are not limited to your own human resources in that moment. The Holy Spirit will guide and direct your words. And the Holy Spirit is the only hope that we will see change or reception in the person we are speaking to. So do not be anxious. God himself is with you. The second promise is connected to the fear of harm. Jesus' promise to outweigh that fear is found in verses 28 through 31. Read those again with me. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both, bo both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus acknowledges that these people can kill your body. But he also points out that they can't touch your soul. God is the only one with the power to kill both body and soul. The worst they can do to you is kill your body and prepare it for resurrection to everlasting life. And then he gives another animal metaphor to tell us about the care of our Father. Look at how personal and pervasive God's care is here. Even a tiny sparrow doesn't die outside of God's will. If he cares that much for a sparrow, how much more does he care for you? Of course, bad things can and will happen to you. But here we see the picture of Job and God having to give permission to Satan to do anything to Job. Brother, sister, there is not one thing that can happen to you without the will of your loving Heavenly Father. Not even one of your hairs can fall to the ground. Do you see what comfort this brings? If your God works all things in this life for the good of those who love Him, then the only things that can touch you are things that He intends for your good. That's not to deny their pain. It's not even to deny the evil intent of those who do it to you. But Jesus tells you that there is nothing that can get past the watchful care of your heavenly Father. The last promise is a promise about time. And it's scattered throughout this passage as well. One of the greatest fears that we all have is a fear that we know is irrational. It's the fear that the pain we are experiencing right now is going to go on forever. It's the feeling that what is happening to me right now is the only thing I can think about. And in the face of this fear, Jesus tells the disciples that this pain and persecution will come to an end. The first is in verse 23. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now this is one of those places where we need to try to discern what is in view. Is it the immediate context of the short-term mission of the disciples or something beyond that? 
And all of that hinges on the meaning of the Son of Man coming. The Son of Man is this title that Jesus likes to call himself. And we recognize that it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel, in a prophecy, sees one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to the throne of God. And this is obviously a picture of Jesus. But the question is, what is it a picture of? Is this Jesus returning to earth in the second coming on the day of judgment? Or is this Jesus coming to the throne of God in victory after his resurrection and ascension? We're going to see this phrase, this phrase more prominently in Matthew 24. Jesus mentions his coming five times in that chapter alone. But what I think we will see throughout Matthew is that Jesus uses this phrase to talk about his victory in different stages. This one seems to be a reference to his victorious resurrection and ascension to his heavenly throne. That fits with the timing of the disciples having gone through all the towns of Israel. But no matter how you take the reference, Jesus is comforting his disciples by telling them that this current state won't last long. Before long, they will see the one they are bearing witness to proclaiming victory even in the midst of their persecution and opposition. Jesus says this again in a different way in verses 26 and 27, and he explicitly ties it to the command not to fear. Verse 26 says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. These verses can sound kind of cryptic at first, but pay attention to the development. Verse 26 talks about the way things are now compared to how they will be. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Right now, the kingship of Jesus looks like it is covered or hidden. The world is not remade yet. Instead, Jesus' people suffer, and those who hate him seem to be winning. But Jesus promises that it won't always be this way. There is a day coming where his victory and kingdom will be known and revealed to everyone everywhere. And so his command is tied to this. We are to speak in light of that coming day. Instead of hiding the truth about Jesus' kingship, we are to shout it from the rooftops because we have confidence that Jesus reigns right now and the day his kingship will be revealed is coming soon. Jesus tells us again and again that the days of waiting are shorter than they seem. And then the last place he tells us this is verses 32 and 33. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The day is coming where all the cards will be on the table. Nothing will be hidden anymore. Those who have held power and sway and used it to hurt people in this world will hear the denial of Jesus before his Father the voice of his condemnation over them. And on that same day, 
Those who acknowledge Jesus on this earth will get a blessing that is almost incomprehensible. Jesus will acknowledge you to his Father. Notice that this isn't some sort of works-based who did the most good or who can make it all the way to the end without messing up. The apostles Paul and Peter show us that massive failure still allows the possibility of repentance. This is Jesus pointing out those who have come to him. Those who have refused to cling to this life, but instead have come to Jesus for salvation and rest. And they will hear the voice of their father saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. In the end, Jesus' command to not fear isn't backed by sheer willpower and grit. It is motivated by the sweet and glorious promises of God. This is actually the tenor of this whole passage. We couldn't imagine a passage filled with more distressing topics than persecution, flogging, and martyrdom. But Jesus flips all of this on its head by pointing us to the joys and comforts that believers have in the here and now and will have permanently for all eternity. And he beckons us to cling to those promises and so be faithful in our suffering. Would you all pray with me? Father, we rejoice that you haven't left us to suffer alone. That the pain that we experience even now is not a pain that we experience by ourselves, but it is a pain that is outweighed by the promises that you have given us in your word. So we pray that you would clear our eyes away, that we would see and cling to your promises and so be faithful to your call. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.